0: My name is uh, Tommy. Um, I'm one of the the elders here at Hope Church, and, and this is your your first time. You're very welcome here. We've been um, just started looking into the uh, book of Nehemiah, and, and last week uh, Tom was sharing from the first chapter of Nehemiah, and um, I've had I've had the the privilege to go through the book of Nehemiah, and I have to say I've struggled a little bit um, preparing for this one, um, partly because I I'm a bit of a history nerd. Um, so when I get to start looking at kings, and I'll go and say, "What oh, yeah, did he leave? And what did he do? What did he do? And I find myself just sort of everywhere here. And I found myself reading the book of Nehemiah, reading the book of Ezra, reading the book of Jeremiah, just reading all the things that happened around this time. And I will encourage you, if you're not a his- history nerd like I am, I will say encourage you to read this um, book, because it is a fantastic book for seeing that This world that we live in is not just a a two-dimensional or three-dimensional world. I like to call it a four-dimensional world in the sense that we have our text here, what was written, what happened in history. And we have the people, flesh and blood. But we also have the God that walks and works behind history and pushes and moves and influences. And that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. Where we see ordinary men do extraordinary things on behalf of God and the kingdom of God, and so um, I will encourage you, um, if you, you know, when, we, when we're reading this, to spend—it's not a long book—so spend some time reading this book. And it's also helpful if you read the book of Ezra, because Ezra kind of precedes Nehemiah in in uh, in the timeline of events happening, but the story all joins together. Ezra is all about the building of the temple of God, and then Nehemiah is all about the building of the walls around Jerusalem. So the story is tied together. So we're going to be looking at Nehemiah um, chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verses 1 to to 9. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let, let us be given, to, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That we may, that we may be let a pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word is the light we use to get through our day. Without your word, there is darkness. And Lord, we pray today that you would illuminate in our hearts the light of your word, that we will not go back the same way we came today. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, Lord. There will not be human effort, Lord. It will be your power, Lord, your spirit, Lord. Amen. right, so we get to um, the second chapter of Nehemiah. And we see Nehemiah here at the end of chapter one. He ends with a line, Now I was a cupbearer of the king or a cupbearer to the king. And this is a very prominent, well, it's a very important role. As you can imagine, the cupbearer of the king is one of the last people that will handle the material that would either nourish the king or potentially kill the king. So it was quite a a role of trust, uh, a role that you were in the presence of the king listening to very important conversations and seeing important things in the palace of the king. So as far as Nehemiah being a Jew, being uh, someone who was subjugated, his people were subjugated by Nebuchadnezzar, he'd done quite well for himself to find himself in the king's palace serving the king. And then we see what happens here as Nehemiah comes to the king. Last week we heard about how some men came to Nehemiah from the exiles. These were the people that went, what they call the first, the first returnees from Babylon back to, to Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild. And these guys went with Ezra and they built the temple and did some work. But the work had sort of stalled somewhere. Um, there had been some challenges, some opposition to the work. And the first edict to rebuild the temple came under um, Cyrus the Great. And the, 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 the edict from Cyrus that the temple would be built, the money the funds of the temple would be given to um, the, the, the exiles coming out, the Jewish exiles coming out of Babylon. But there was opposition with people that moved into the land after the Israelites and the Judeans had left the land. There were opposition from people that had, had congregated in that land. And so the work had stalled somewhat. And so they brought back that response to Nehemiah in chapter one. And Nehemiah's heart was filled with sadness, saying that the land of his fathers was desolate. And so this was the context of what Nehemiah was going through. And he went into a time of prayer and fasting, confessing the sins of his parents, confessing the sins of his ancestors or sins of his people for rejecting God and for for the fact that God allowed the calamity to happen to them. He was repentant. And then he said to God, he said to him, in verses 11 of chapter 1, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants, who delight like to fear in your name. And we'll come back to that later. And give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So it looked like Nehemiah was preparing himself to ask for a request from the king. But it was a error. Wasn't, he wasn't a governor, he wasn't a high lord or high noble in the Achaemenid empire. He was an exile living under the mercies of the great king. And he prayed to God, give me success in the sight of this man. Today we're going to talk about God's favor. That's the, uh, what we're going to be looking at here, God's favor And the interesting thing about this is that as soon as Nehemiah went into the presence of the king, thinking and pondering about these things, the king noticed. He said, you look sad. You look worried. And this was an interesting moment for Nehemiah because it could have been potentially the end of Nehemiah. You can imagine someone who serves the great king coming to him with his face downcast. The king is thinking of two things. It's either... Something's wrong in your family or either something's wrong in the cup that I'm about to drink. And so the king, you know, asked the question, what is this? Why are you sad? Why are you downcast? He said, you're not sick. You don't look sick. This looks like sadness of the heart. And it's interesting because the king had been served by Nehemiah before. So he knew what Nehemiah looked like when Nehemiah was doing his job. And something was off Nehemiah. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah said he, 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 he said, Why should I not be sad when the graves of my father lie desolate? He appealed to the king's sympathy. In the, in the Eastern culture, um, it was a it was a thing to be regarded when the the graves either of your friends or your enemy was desecrated. So he went to a common point there. The graves of my father's lie desolate. That's why I'm sad. At that point, the king looks at him and says, what do you want? It's like he went from zero and he went right to 100. What do you want? And I love what Nehemiah says. And so I prayed to the God of heaven. He made his quick prayer. God, give me success. And he says, "We read it here. If it pleases the Lord your servant, if I find favor in your sight, send me to Judah." And we see what the king does at the end of uh, at verses eight. And the king granted me what I wanted, and he said this, and granted me what I wanted. For the good hand of God was upon me. The good hand of God was upon me. But the interesting thing about this is that if you read further on. I think in verses 3 or verses four or chapter 4, you see that in the same year, in, in, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 5, verses 14, in the same year, which is in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, not only was Nehemiah given a right to go back to Judah to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem, but he was also made a governor. So he, he didn't just get what he wanted. He got way beyond what he wanted. And this is what divine favor looks like. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is God's favor? Favor is something that we all want. You know, um, the Romans worshipped Fortuna, you know, the God of good fortune. People want, you know, people win, people play the lottery because, the because they want to make money and want to be um, fortunate and, and, and um, have a life that they can afford everything. Favor and fortune is something people seek. But what is God's favor? Firstly, what we must clarify is God's favor is not the same as the universal goodness of God. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus said that God sends his rain and the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's God gives everybody, regardless of whether they follow him or not, he gives them good things. That's the universal goodness of God. We're not talking about that. The favor of God is universal. It's not universal. It is unique. It is specific. It is like having a key that opens all doors. And the biblical description of the favor of God is the presence of God. It is like the presence of God accompanying you in all that you do, enabling you to have great success. Great success. And the presence of God is described in different ways in the Old Testament. In this, time, in this instance, we see the, the, the presence of God being described as the good hand of God being upon him. The hand of God being upon him. In the book of Ezra 5, um, chapter 5, verses 5, we see God's presence is described as the eye of the Lord. The eye of the Lord was on the elders of the Jews. The eye of the Lord was on the elders of the Jew. In the subsequent chapter, we see that King Darius, when the, the, they were rebuffing and challenging the Jews from building the temple, when, when the, the, the people made a request to King Darius, King Darius went and searched the annals of the king's. And he found the edict that was made by Cyrus for the temple to be built. And he said, leave them alone. And he made some certain edicts and says, if anyone disturbs them, a shaft is going to be pulled out of that disturber's house. And they're going to be impaled on that shaft. Leave them alone. Because God was watching over the people doing that work. And we see in Ezra chapter 7, 6 and 10, that the hand or the good hand of God was upon him. The good hand of God was upon Ezra. And this again was followed by the edict of Artaxerxes I, that the rebuilding of the temple must be completed without interruptions and challenges. We see in 1 Samuel 18, 14, that young David, the soldier, he said, had success in all his undertaking. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when the Jews pray, they make this prayer. They make this prayer in Numbers six twenty two to 26. You might have heard this prayer before. They, they would say, and I'll read from, from Numbers 26, or from verse 6, 22 to 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The thing that the, the Jewish mind desires above all is that the face of God shines upon them because they know that if the face of God shines upon me I'm salted in Psalm 23 God is described as the ever-present shepherd the one whose rod and staff comforts us his favor is seen as preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies that's favor when there should be challenges where there should be suffering and pain what you have something that is contrary. You have food, abundance, plentiful in the presence of your enemy. This is what it means. In the times of old, the Israelites when they were going into battle would take the ark of God and carry it on their shoulders. And the priests would carry the ark of God because they know that the ark of God was symbolic and signified the presence of God. And so what do we think about when we think about the favor of God? It's about his presence about his hand, his face, his very being with us. This is what, as Christians, we should desire, that God go with us. Moses prayed. He says, Lord, we will not leave this place if you do not go with us. How how can we be different from all the peoples of the world if we are like them? No, you have to go with us. Your presence must go with us. This is very important for us to understand. When we think about having favor and great success in life, we need God's presence. It's non-negotiable. So how then do we gain God's favor? How do we acquire this powerful favor of God? This favor that turns the hearts of kings. This favor that opens doors. How do we gain this favor? It seems like a good thing to have. First thing to know about God's favor is that it is not transactional. God's favor is free, but it's not conditional. But it is conditional. So you can't buy God's favor. You can't earn God's favor. You can't do enough good works for God to go, great, I'm going to give you my favor now. It is free, but it's conditional. It sounds contrary. I'll explain it to you. In Exodus thirty-three nineteen, 19, we see God say that I will have mercy on those whom I choose to have mercy on. We see, I will make my goodness pass before him and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's not about you. It's not about your status. It's not about your family heritage. It's about God and what he chooses to do. That's the first thing about it. It's from him. You haven't earned it. You can never earn it. What are you going to give to him anyway? What do you have that he doesn't already own? He says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He says the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. What do you have? What does Bill Gates have? What does Elon Musk have that he doesn't have already? We can't buy his favor. He gives us favor freely, but he doesn't give it randomly. There's a purpose behind how. And when he gives his favor. The second thing to grasp is God's favor is on those whose heart is set on him. In 2 Chronicles sixteen nine, it says, For the eyes of the Lord runs to and fro the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. That means God's eyes. It's continually moving, continually searching the earth looking for who to what favor, give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. What that means is that those whose hearts desire Listen to what it says. When, when we read in Ezra 7.10, it says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes. Ezra made, it, made his mind up that I will study the word of the Lord and I will do it and I will teach it. His heart was for the ways of God. And that's why we see God's favor was in him. That's why it says the good hand of God was on Ezra. Because it made his heart follow God. We see Nehemiah concerned for the well-being of Jerusalem, for the well-being of the people of God. He acknowledges his sin. And we say what it what says in, in, in verses 11 of chapter 1. And I read this earlier on. And I, when I read it, I thought this is, very, this is a very peculiar thing to say. It says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. They don't just fear your name. They delight to fear in your name. I thought that's a bit weird. Like, it's, a bit, it's a bit over the top, isn't it? He delights to fear in the name of the Lord. And I thought, what, what does this mean? And, and, and I have this, this picture of my, my young one at home. I, I, I love when she eats because um, she eats in a way that makes me happy. I just love watching her eat because she's delighted by food. And, and, and last night, she, she was asking for some snack. And, and, you know, I just said, okay, fine. It's, I need some... It's, I'll give you what you need. Went to the top cupboard and just started pulling out the the, the, the cracker and she was doing a, she was doing a war dance. She was like, da-da-da. Just dancing to this song. I, just, I, was just, I was just looking at her and I just thought, I wish I had a camera now and just capture this moment just to show you what you're like. She's so delighted in food. And, and it delighted my heart when I see her so delighted. And it says that God's people are those who delight to fear in his name. Which means you delight in what pleases him. If you you know this, this word comes from God. These are the ways of God. This is what God likes. This is what pleases him. This is what he appreciates. This is what he wants. You delight in that. Such people are those who God's favor rests on. We must be people that... Cultivate delighting in what pleases God. Thirdly, God's favor is on the excellent worker. In Proverbs twenty-two, verse twenty-nine, it says, "Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men." Nehemiah was a man of excellence. <clears throat> You don't stand before the king of kings of the Persian Empire, the Achaemenid dynasties. You don't stand before them because you're mediocre. You have to be excellent. You have to serve with poise. He stood in the presence of the king. And it was clear that this was an excellent server because the moment his performance slipped slightly, the king noticed it. Because it was a man of excellence. We see this through scripture. We see this right from the exiles that the the people, the people of God, the Jews that were taken out of Jerusalem, taken from Judah, and, and taken to, to, the, to Babylon, where seven, many of them were seven in the king's palace. Some of them, many of them weren't. But once we see seven in the king's palace, names like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, people like Esther, people like Mordecai. Seven, Ezra, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah. These were people, if you look at their stories, they were excellent. There were none that could be found like them. God's favor is on the excellent worker. Now, this is very important. Because when we think about our journey and our walk in this life, not many give thoughts to the word excellent or excellence in work. You often hear people say... I'm not paid enough for this. Or oh, they don't—they don't even—they don't, even, don't even do things the way I'd like to do it. Yeah, we're colleagues, and sometimes even ourselves, we can find ourselves grumbling. But why do we strive for excellence? Why, why is excellence important in the life of a Christian? I—I I have a life group I lead. I worship with God's people. I serve faithfully in God's church. I do all these great and wonderful things. work, you're not an excellent worker. There's something missing there. God's favor would not shine on you. Even if you give half your money, half your wealth to the poor, but you don't work excellently, you'll not see God's favor. Why do I say this so confidently? Number one, our Father in heaven is an excellent worker. He's excellent. You don't believe me? Take a telescope Look into the stars of the sky and then let your mouth just be ajar at the beauty and the magnificence of his created order. Take a microscope and look into the universe of the cell and be amazed at the excellence of the creator. He says, in the beginning, he created a male and female and he made them in, their own, in his own image. He made us an image to be creative To work, to be uh, people that enjoy laughter, have fun. But he created us to be excellent workers. Not just to work, but to work excellently. Our Father in heaven is an excellent worker. And every good child must imitate a good father. The second reason we must be excellent in our work is because... We work for God, not for man. Colossians 3:23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. When you go into work, guess who your ultimate employer is? It's God. When you look at your salary, it goes, oh, yeah, uh, you know, if switch borough council, that's not true. That's an illusion. <laughs> the real employer is God. Because at the end of times, you say, I saw how you worked then. Your human masters might not have seen the effort you put in, but God sees. Work as if you are serving the Lord. Why? Because you are serving the Lord. But what that does for us is something else. You see, if I was working for my human master, I could, I could sort of be half hearted at our work. When it's in the office, I could look very, uh, when it leaves the office, just, whatever. But if I'm serving God, if I'm working as if I'm working for the, my employer that sits in heaven, then my attitude changes. I don't go, oh, they don't pay me enough for this, because I'm not waiting for their payment, I'm waiting for his payment. My father is the one that rewards me. It, it gives you a completely different perspective on how you approach work. Why? Why, are you so, why do you care? Because I work for my father in heaven. Excellence must be the marker of all Christians. All Christians. If there's something I want you to take away from this, it is to be excellent at your work. Excellence is a scarce commodity. That's why it says in Proverbs, "Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings." Why? Because scarcity of excellence is something that the rulers look for. Let it be said in your workplace. You know, we don't really like Christians. You know, they're a bit funny. They believe all this weird, funny stuff. But you know what? They they work hard. The output we get from them is second to none. Let that be our brand as Christians. Look at the likes of C.S. Lewis, the great writer, a a wonderful intellect, an academic mind. He basically took the Gospels and made it into a parable. So good, so good that the God-hating Hollywood had to make it into a movie. And if you've ever watched the Chronicles of Narnia before, you'd be like, yeah, that's the Gospel. Yeah, that's the Gospel. Yeah, that's the Gospel. Yeah, that's the Gospel. Why? Because it was excellent. Even the world... Cannot deny excellence. But many of us too often we feel like just doing enough to get by is enough. God's favor does not rest on such people. Fourthly, God's favor is on those who will accomplish his purpose. I mentioned before that God's favor is free, but it's conditional. But it is free but not but conditional. The ultimate condition for God giving out his favor is the completion of his purpose. Which basically means, at the end of the day, it's about him, not about us. I think this is something worth wrapping our head around. If you are coming to a place in your life where, wow, I'm fortunate. I've got a great job now. I've got you know a great wife now. I've got great children now. I've got great this and great that. It's not about you. It's about him. God grants to us great favor, great success, not because of, you know. God is like, you know, that Nehemiah guy. He deserves a break. No, God's thinking about his own purpose, his own mission, what he desires. A colleague. Well, I'll give. I'll give. I'll give this. I'll give this um, testimony. Uh, uh, A brother here um, was sharing with me this morning, I won't mention his name, about how God gave him great favor to get a a, a new job just just this week gone by. And it was a job that the application date had gone by, had been closed. They told him, well, I think we should apply for this. It was closed. He applied. It was closed. Somehow they told him, okay, fine, come do this test thing where they give you these different scenarios he does it and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, I've completely, just, this is just absolutely ridiculous. He goes in there, thinks, not going to get anything. And God somehow, somehow opens the door in the most unconventional way for him and gives him great success. Now, the interesting thing about that is that is God, does God want to bless my brother? Absolutely. Does God want him to, you know, prosper materially? Absolutely. But you know what God is more concerned about? His kingdom is concerned about his kingdom, his purposes. So my brother got that job, ultimately because God is doing something and he wants him to be involved in it. Now, I've said that God looks on those or gives favor to those whose heart is set on him. But I'm going to give a little something that is, you might think, That's, that doesn't sound quite right. Do you know that God sometimes favors those who don't believe in him. Do you know sometimes he favors pagans and unbelievers? And even God hates, us, he grants favour to them. And you might think, That doesn't make any sense. But I know God, I follow him, I walk with him. Why don't I why is he being favored by God? Isaiah forty five, one to six, God prophesies, very, very prominent part of scripture, prophesies the prominence and the rise of Cyrus. And mentions explicitly twice that Cyrus does not know him. Does not know him. Isaiah uh, uh, 45. Many people will know about about that passage. But I find very interesting about that. And I just think it'd be useful to just hear this for us. And it says from verse 3, I will give you treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, will call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and for Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me, I am the Lord and there is no other. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. God raises kings that are pagans. He raises CEOs that do not know him. Why? Because he has a plan from all eternity that he will bring to pass. He does the same thing for for, 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 for kings like Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked king, an evil king. What does God do? God raises him up to destroy Jerusalem. Why? Because they were rebelling against God and God uses Nebuchadnezzar, grants him favor and grants him great victory. We see in Psalm 35, he says, He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. Daniel 2 21 to 22. He changes times and seasons, sets up kings, and deposes them. Why does God do all this thing? What is, what is God's plan? What is His purpose? If you are a student of the, of the scriptures, you will realize that God's plan was essentially. We are given a glimpse of it in the third chapter of scriptures where man fell and sinned against God. And then God places a curse on the man and places a curse on the woman and places a curse on the serpent. And then he says that there will be this tension, this fight between between the woman and, and the serpent. There'll be an enmity. And that the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And ever since this has been unfolding through human history, Until we get to Isaiah, and in Isaiah chapter 9, 6 to 7, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And in the answer this the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God is doing something. And God is all about his kingdom. You see, a good king is all about his kingdom. is all about the welfare and the well-being of his kingdom and the expansion of that kingdom. But God is no ordinary king. God is the one who speaks things that doesn't exist into existence. And when he says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this, that's a big deal. Since creation, he has been concerned with one thing, that his kingdom will subs- subsume all other kingdoms. And that's why we, when you read history, You read about the great kings. You read about Cyrus. You read about Artaxerxes and Xerxes and Darius and Alexander and Genghis Khan. You read about all these great kings. They rise and they disappear. But God's kingdom is coming and it's being built. And we saw some evidence of that this morning. As God's kingdom is expanding and more and more are added into his family. And it's unstoppable. Emperors persecute. Nations, governments persecute, try to stifle. Political systems come up, try to stifle. But God's kingdom keeps expanding. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord Almighty is behind it. You want God's favor. Then align yourself, align yourself with what motivates God. You see, if you make your life about that which motivates God, you would always find favor. Why? Because the zeal is going to be behind it. Like it's, like a, it's like a no-brainer. Has anyone ever told you of an investment and come to you? guy? you have to invest in this. It's a no-brainer. The returns are guaranteed. That's what this is. Invest in what pleases God. Invest in His kingdom. Many times we're too focused on the concerns that we are surrounded by. Concerns that are real. In an economy like, to, like what we're going, going through now, the price and cost of things is just going through the roof. And so we ask ourselves the question, how do I survive this month? How, how do I look after my children? What, what's going to happen at my, with my children when I leave this world? Would I find a good paying job? Or would I find a, a spouse? Would I be able to live well? We ask ourselves these questions. And they're not bad questions. What does Christ says? Christ says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I always remember that, those words. And I think what's well, easy enough for you to say Christ, you're the Son of God. Of course you're going to say these things. Remember what Nehemiah did. He goes to the king as a mere cupbearer and says to the king, I desire to rebuild the land of my fathers. That's all he asked for. That's all he wanted. And the king looks at him and says, I'll grant that to you. And it says, by the way, you're going to be the governor of that land. That's why Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness says, what is right by God? What pleases God? Seek that first. And all the other things that you didn't ask for will be added to you. That's what it means. As a church, we have to be concerned for the kingdom of God. And as a church, I am I'm so thankful that as a church, we are not obsessed about i um, building a uh, large crowd here. You might think that if you come in here, that's not the motivation of this church. We've had prophecies spoken over this church that people will be sent out from this church. And sometimes as a family, you get, get cozy. If you're, if you're an older parent in here, I'm sure you'll appreciate that. Time comes when the kids leave the nest. And it's a, an inevitability. And you want them to stay with you. But you also know that that's an expansion of your family. They go start their own families, and that family starts new families. And that's what we are like with this church. We are about bringing and sending God's gospel to the far richest of the world. We don't have an illusion that we're all going to be here forever. In a year or a couple of years, God might call you and say, I want you to go to this country, or I want you to move to this new town. Currently, we are looking at, we've already started, and we've prayed into an area of Ipswich, where we're saying we want God to move in here. We want God to establish his presence here also. We are also about the kingdom of God. And we ask ourselves the questions in in our elders' meeting, how is this going to happen? What what is it going to look like? One thing I am sure about is that the zeal of God will accomplish it. I am convinced of that. We have to be people that are concerning ourselves with the work of God. I'm going to invite the the band to come onto stage. And I'm going to say something that um, was sort of very heavy on my mind when I was reading scriptures. Do you want the peace of God? It says that Christ is the Prince of Peace. He says his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. There are some people here that don't have peace because they're not walking and they're not part of God's kingdom. There's only one way we get his peace. It's only through the man, Jesus Christ. We've heard about him this morning, those who were baptized in his name. Jesus was not a typical king. He came from heaven. He was exalted by the angels in heaven. But he came down and he found himself living among human beings. This one whose kingdom will be, up, will, there will be no end, came living among human beings. And then was accused of crimes he did not commit. And then he finds himself carrying a cross of death all the way up to the top of a hill called Golgotha. On him was put distress and chaos and all that was meant for us went unto him. And why? Would, why was he doing all these things? Why? Because it was all about the kingdom. And he wants you, that don't know peace, to be part of his kingdom. If you're here today and say, "I have no relationship with Jesus Christ," and this is for you, He's the only one that grants peace to us. He's the only one. He's the only one that gives us access to the Father, that we can say that God is my Father not because of anything I've done, that I can say that I have favor from God, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ did on the cross. And we know that that sacrifice was so faithfully accepted because on the third day he rose again. He rose again because death was like, I have no claim on this person. If you place your trust in that man, the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ will be for you and so on my right-hand side today, there's going to be people praying for us today. I'm going to encourage, and I'll urge you, if you don't know Christ, come to him today. Come that you may have favor in God. Come that you may be part of his kingdom. Come because is calling you. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, not because of anything in our key not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. We thank you because you favor us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would help them to walk in what motivates you. Help us to be motivated by the kingdom of God. Help us to seek first your kingdom. trusting you always. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.